Hey, I'm Sassnacks. It's Chelsea back for another episode of the Sassnack Files. This week, I'm discussing 502 Between Two Fires. But before we get to that, I want to take a moment to remind you that you can find the Sassnack Files on all sorts of listening platforms, including iTunes, CastBox, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, and many more. Also, if you had not had a chance yet, make sure you head over to follow the Sassnack Files on both Facebook and Instagram to make sure you are up to date on all of the latest and greatest news concerning Outlander Season 6 and seven, as well as anything Diana Gabaldon decides to cook up. And with all of that out of the way, let's get into my analysis of 502 Between Two Fires. I thought that this episode was pretty aptly named. I love breaking down the titles every now and then. So this one's titled Between Two Fires, and the obvious way that it's relating to the episode is Murta's quote about Jamie walking between two fires. But I think it's key to see that all of our main characters are walking between two fires of some sort in this episode, whether it's Claire with 18th century medicine versus her knowledge of what will be in the future, whether it's Roger walking between the two fires of keeping his wife happy versus wanting to go back to the future, whether it's Jamie's walking between two fires of Governor Tryon and the government versus his own people and Myrta and the regulators. So I think everybody is kind of juggling two desires and could easily lean one way or the other, and they're trying to have one foot on either side of the border, so to speak. I think this is a great way to start out this episode because a lot of our characters are struggling with something in this episode. And we'll start with the obvious one, Jamie. There are a lot of fabricated storylines in this episode. Jamie's entire storyline in this episode was created for television. And most of Claire's storyline in this episode was created for television, but also kind of pieces pulled here and there from different points in the book, all thrown into this one lump sum that we get in this episode. Jamie and the regulators, at the end of the last episode, Governor Tryon left Lieutenant Knox and his soldiers with Jamie to begin the hunt for Myrta as soon as possible. It's a week later when we start Between Two Fires and Jamie and Knox are getting ready to leave the ridge to head out in search of Myrta Fitzgibbons. This huge villain in Knox's eyes that Knox is completely clueless. He has no idea that Jamie has any sort of connection to Myrta and the regulators. Clearly, that's how Jamie wants it. I mean, once it's known that he has sympathy for the regulators, it's over, right? He loses his land. He loses everything he has. He's branded a traitor, could possibly be arrested and hanged. So Jamie's trying very hard to keep his sympathies a secret while also protecting Myrta and his men as much as possible. One of the questions that I asked this week in the listener comments feed was, what were your thoughts on Lieutenant Knox? Book readers don't really care for him because he's a fabricated character. There's a character named Major McDonald in the books, but the show creators have said that Lieutenant Knox has nothing to do with Major McDonald and he is completely a new character. So we can't even assume that he's adapted from a character that Diana created which I'm kind of glad because Lieutenant Knox is really 
anything like Major McDonald's. So I'm glad that they made that distinction and they didn't try to pass it off as, well, here's this guy that we halfway created, but he's inspired by this character. That irritates me. It's like, if you want to create a new character, just create a new character. It's fine. Well, sometimes it's fine. But anyway, (laughs) so Lieutenant Knox is an interesting cat. And a lot of you, whether show watchers or book readers, both said that you did not care for him. There was no back and forth about it. You were all like, oh, I can't stand that guy. And it's funny because I don't necessarily hate Lieutenant Knox. I can see him as a character. Like, I see all sides of him. He's not two-dimensional to me. And so anytime that a character has dimension and shape and depth, that's when it's hard for me to fully say, oh, I don't like them. Because there's so many different facets. And I guess what I mean by that is that Knox has a very clear sense of right and wrong. He has this idea of what justice means and which side he's on. I don't think that that makes him a bad person. I just think that that puts him on a different side of things than we as viewers are pre-programmed to be on. Especially if you're an American, you're naturally on the side of the rebels 99% of the time in these revolution era shows. But Knox, he's just doing what he thinks is right. And he has remorse for what happens in the jail at first. And then he kind of lulls himself into thinking that he did the right thing. Like he granted an act of mercy versus acting out of vengeance. Because I think that's the only way that he can live with himself and what he did. He knows that what he did was wrong. So I don't necessarily think that he's a bad person. In fact, I think Jamie actually likes Lieutenant Knox. There's this one really great line that they have whenever they're discussing their impressions of each other. Lieutenant Knox describes Jamie as a man I'm pleased to break bread with, an industrious man, certainly. Your effort to cultivate the land Tryon granted you are proof of your loyalty to king and country. You've brought men and women together. Your gathering was proof of that. Knox admires Jamie and what he's done with the land that has been given to him. And I think that he certainly aspires to rise to the level of what Jamie has. And he views Jamie as an honorable man like himself that's fighting for king and country. Obviously, he has no idea that Jamie is really a rebel. Jamie does a very good job of keeping that under wraps, and that's a necessary thing. And I think that that desire to keep his cover, I mean, Jamie has a lot of experience with this, with playing both sides. He did it throughout season two whenever he was in Paris. The whole espionage, double identity thing is kind of his jam. It's his sweet spot. So um, not that he necessarily enjoys it, but he's certainly good at it and he knows how to play this game. So when Knox kills Ethan in the jail, he immediately defends Knox because he knows later on in the episode when he goes to break these men out, he's going to need Knox's trust in order to not be thrown into the suspect pool. And he's not at the end. Knox doesn't even pause for a second in thinking that Jamie could have potentially broken these men out of prison. It's very interesting that Jamie sees this far ahead and says, no, I need to play this game now so that in the future, I'm not even on the list of people that could have potentially done this. It's covering his tracks before they're even made. And I think that it's a very 
ingenious way of acting, which I mean, I guess if you have to keep yourself off all the the lists, you have to think ahead like that. So it makes sense. But Knox, he's he's a generous man. I mean, we see when he's on the road to Hillsborough, he gives money to the family that their wagon is broken down on the side of the road. And of course, the family's not grateful for it. Obviously, they don't care for the presence of all of the English soldiers in the province. Knox makes a point where he says, you have to respect the king's army. Through this conversation with Jamie, they're starting to learn, Knox and Jamie, that their inclinations and their values are more closely aligned than they think they are. Jamie makes a comment and Knox says, do I detect some sympathy for the regulators? And Jamie says, I have sympathy for any man who can't afford to feed his family. More is exchanged, and Jamie says, do I detect that you have some sympathy with the regulators? And Knox has this fantastic line, which is my quote of the episode, where he says, I suppose it's reasonably true that there is never a convenient time for death or taxes, which (laughs) it's true. Taxes, man, they're like the one thing that nobody ever stops complaining about. It's the government taking your money, right? I know I complain about it every time I get my paycheck. And everybody that I know also complains about how much of their paycheck goes towards taxes. It's so funny because I was reading an article a few months ago. I don't know the exact numbers, but at the time of the American Revolution, the tax rate that the average American colonist was paying the British government was somewhere in the range of 5 to 10%. And at today's tax rate, the average American citizen is paying the government approximately 20% of their paycheck, if not more, because it's based on income brackets. That kind of blows my mind that we went from this people that were willing to wage war on our mother country because they were charging us like 7% taxes to being totally okay and not even thinking about... (laughs) potentially rebelling against a government that is taking 20 to 25%, sometimes even 30% of our income. So that just kind of was crazy for me. And I just had to take a step back for a moment and think about that. But um, it's interesting, isn't it? So yeah, I don't really blame Lieutenant Knox for being who he is, I guess. He's a man of integrity and of honor, and he takes his oath to the crown extremely seriously. After everything is said and done in the jail and he and Jamie are drinking in the tavern, he is making the comment that as he's talking himself into accepting what he's done and making his peace with it, he's saying, well, I gave that man a soldier's death better than what he deserved and the other men that he's with will be sent to Newburn to be hanged as a symbol of the king's justice. So I did him a favor, basically. And I think that's what a lot of people have a problem with when it comes to Knox, that in justifying his actions to himself, he sort of becomes a villain. But I never really see him as a villain. I see him as a relatively good person who just has different values and different things worth fighting for to him. And that's when Jamie says, do you not have a cause that you would die for, Lieutenant? Knox looks at him kind of baffled and he's like, well, we're here, aren't we? And then he says, to die for king and country, for that is an oath we have both sworn. And Jamie looks at him and says, I, we have 
it just sticks in his craw. You can see it. He is so bitter. Never in a million years did Jamie ever think that he would sit on the side of the British and fight for them. After what they did to him and his people, he just can't justify it to himself still. And if he did not have people to fight for and people to protect on his land, his settlers, his family, he probably would be a regulator. But his hands are tied. And so whenever Jamie gets to the jail, the first time when he and Knox are talking to Ethan, Lee, and Brian, Jamie says, well, let me talk to them first. And he has his back to Knox. And there is this entire subtext to this conversation that they have, wherein he's asking, where is Murta? But his eyes are really saying, I don't really want to know where Murta is. <laughs> I want you to keep that knowledge to yourself. And then he says, I know how persuasive a Highlander can be. I'm grown out of the same ground. And he's saying, I don't really want to fight with you. I'm doing what I'm doing because I have to, not because I want to. And then he says, I have land and settlers, men and women who depend on me. So it's not my choice. I'm not here because I want to be. I'm here because I have to be. And don't tell me anything that I don't need to know. I'm not here to, to bully it out of you. So I love that entire subtext. And the men that he's talking to, they understand. They get it. But they're still like, but you're still here, bro. Like, you're still here pretending. And when Brian and Lee go back to Murta, they're saying, I'm not sure he's on our side, which means that Jamie is doing a good job <laughs> of playing both sides against the middle. but. At the same time, it's just really confusing because I don't even think that after this episode, Jamie fully knows what side he's on. He's certainly on Murta's side. He doesn't want any harm to come to Murta. And that, I think, is the primary reason for his actions. It boils down to Murta in the show anyway. Jamie doesn't have this conflict in the books, and he's doing it probably for the most part because of his oath to the crown, but he doesn't have as much internal debate about his actions. So I see why the show decided to have this whole created plot because it makes it more interesting. But anyway, Jamie's actions are certainly boiling down to the fact that he doesn't want anything to happen to Murta and he's trying to protect him. When Knox and Jamie and all of their men arrive in Hillsboro and they see the destruction that has been created by these riots, it's really hard to justify that in your head. And Jamie knows Murta and he knows Murta's men and he knows, or at least he has it in his head that whatever they do, it's because they have to do it. They're acting out of necessity, not out of an urge to destroy people, like out of evil motivations. So that's how Jamie is justifying their actions to himself. Much the same as Knox is justifying his own actions to himself. It's the way that they live with what they're doing. When Jamie and Knox go into the tavern and they see what has happened to these tax collectors, that they were tarred and feathered, they're scarred beyond belief, they've still got feathers stuck to their raw skin. Oh, it's, it looks so painful. And you hear these firsthand accounts of what the regulators did during the riots. Jamie is just absolutely horrified. I was horrified watching it. The way that this episode opened up, I was like, oh my God, this is not Murta. This is not the Murta that I had in my head. And so there were a couple of instances in this episode where characters 
behaved outside of the norm. So I'm not entirely sure that the writer of this episode had a good idea of who these characters are. It was one of those episodes, much like Heaven and Earth in season three, where I really just felt like most of the characters in that episode were not who we know them as in this show. So I kind of had that feeling multiple times in this episode that the writer just didn't have a good feel for who our characters were. Because I really felt that Murta would not encourage this kind of behavior. Murta is smarter than that, and he knows that if the regulators are going to be successful, they can't be burning down houses and boiling people alive and tar and then dragging them through the streets. So I really just felt off about that whole situation. It clearly puts Jamie off. And after him and Knox are given the whole rundown of everything that happened and that one of the men that was tarred and feathered may succumb to his wounds and that somebody's going to die this horrific death, Jamie makes a comment that he says, one day you'll learn to wear your scars with honor, knowing that you received them doing your duty. I felt in that moment that he was talking about his own feelings about his own scars because he got the welts on his back protecting his family and not speaking out against anyone and taking his punishment without a word. The only reason that he got that extra hundred lashes was because he didn't give in. While floggings are shameful in the 18th century, I think Jamie's learned to accept his scars and wear them with honor in a way, much like all the other scars littering his body. But he's speaking from experience when he told that man that. Knox, seeing the same horrors that Jamie is seeing, turns to him and says, you still have that sympathy, Mr. Fraser. Jamie turns to him and says, I never thought they would do something like this. He thought it was about taxes, and these actions that the regulators have taken against the townspeople of Hillsborough have nothing to do with taxes. This is just destruction, plain and simple. So Jamie struggles with that, with their actions, and the consequences of those actions are far-reaching. And while Jamie still wants to protect Murta, I think it also flabbergasts him a little bit when he finds out later in the episode that Murta was the biggest duck in the pond when it came to the Hillsborough riots. It wasn't men acting independent of Murta's orders. Murta was there with him, which also speaks to the fact that while Jamie Jamie told Murta, be hard to find, this is not Murta being hard to find at all. He's not listening to Jamie, and Jamie is doing everything in his power to save Murta from the wrath of the British government, but Murta's not helping himself, and I think that that is also getting frustrating for Jamie as well, because he's putting himself in a lot of danger. Like, his neck is on the line trying to protect Murta, and Murta is not making things easy for him, which I can imagine is really weighing on Jamie pretty heavily. Murta, on the other hand, like I said, we see him in the cold opening of this episode, which kind of seems standard in this season so far, Previously, whenever we've had a cold open for an episode, it's always been an episode that is, it starts from Jamie's perspective. And I know that in season five, we're starting to open up and get more characters and explore things from different people's points of view. So it makes sense that these cold opens aren't always going to be from Jamie's perspective. What I'm noticing is that the cold opens in season five are from Myrta's perspective. So I thought that that was interesting to note, but also that we 
have another Murta scene later on in this episode between Murta and Brian and Lee. And this is when they're talking about Jamie walking between two fires because Murta trusts Jamie. Rightfully so. They've known each other for a long time. They have a special bond. It's much like a father and son relationship. Myrta knows that Jamie is not acting because he's such a loyalist. He's doing what he has to do to protect his people. And so Myrta defends Jamie to his men and says, he's walking between two fires. And Brian says, and you wavering between two fires? And Myrta says, I have no say over my godson, and he has no say over me. And then Lee pipes up and says, but he stands with the crown. And Myrta says, no, he stands with his people, and I stand with mine. And it just happens that this is the time in history where there are lines in the sand and people are divided. It's tough. And I've discussed it before where we're looking at the lines being drawn between family. That's how the revolution was. It wasn't the British against the American colonists. It was American colonists against American colonists. It was a war of ideals as it's referred to in the books. And I'm sure it's been referred to that amongst many a scholar. But families were divided because of this. And that is something we're seeing in full force so far in season five is that it's not that they don't love each other and it's not that they wouldn't die for one another, but they believe in this cause so strongly one way or the other that they're willing to let it split their family down the middle. And they're going to do their best to not have to harm each other in the doing of it. But as Jamie realizes at the end of this episode, when he breaks Lee and Brian out of jail He says, you guys can't come back to Hillsboro. Knox has an army at his disposal. And Lee pipes up and says, I across the water, but we have an army here. Men with nothing to lose. And farmers though we be, we beat our plowshares into swords and our training for battle. I think that was a wake up call to Jamie. This whole episode, I think he had lulled himself into a false sense of security that the regulators were just this nuisance and that they could stamp out the these baby flames and it would all go away. And he's realizing that the people that are fighting as regulators, they have lost everything. They have had everything taken from them by the government. And they literally have nothing else to lose but their lives. And they're willing to give those lives for their cause. It's like Knox says... One man fighting for his home is worth a hundred men fighting for pay. Jamie is understanding this abundantly clear as we progress through this episode because it's not as simple as he thought it was. And there is much more passion involved. And these causes are personal. It is not about the political. It's going to end up being a war. It's not going to be a good result. It's not going to be easy to just quiet it down. And honestly, this is bigger than any one person at this point. Even if Jamie were to convince Myrta to back down, there are so many men that feel so strongly at this point that there's no way, no way that it's going away. So I think Jamie realizes that this has snowballed out of control at this point. Like his hands are tied, Myrta's hands are tied, and it is going to be what it is. 
Now, another character that is dealing with walking between two fires in this episode is Claire. Her fires are both metaphorical. (laughs) There's no war and destruction in her storyline, but she's fighting against the beliefs of the people on the ridge that 18th century medicine is valid versus the idea of Claire's knowledge from the future. And how to get that idea across to people that think that she's simply a a healer and not a learned physician, like this moron that's prescribing St. John's wort to ingest for a burnt hand. It's a difficult situation for Claire, and we're dealing with different variations of this all through the episode. It starts right off the top when we get Mr. Farish coming to Claire and he's on death's door. His stomach feels like a knife through the gut and his wife is saying all the things that she's tried to do to make him feel better. All the things that are in the housewife's handbook for medicinal cures. Um, Purgatives, which are just to make you vomit or have diarrhea, get anything out of your system. She's tried letting blood, which is supposed to drain the humors from your body, anything toxic in your blood. It's supposed to help get that out. And she's tried blue mass pills. I'm not sure what benefit mercury was supposed to have in the 18th century. I did Google it a little bit as far as mercury poisoning and how that affects the body. It's mostly neurological effects. It throws off your balance. It throws off your reaction time, your memory, things like your ability to speak. So it has all of those things. But then if you have acute mercury poisoning because you ingest something with a high amount of mercury in it, like blue mass pills, it's also going to affect your circulatory system, your heart. It's going to make you vomit. It's going to give you all the neurological deficits that minor mercury poisoning would give you, along with difficulty, breathing, nausea, a lot of those things. And it's not curable. There's no way to cure mercury poisoning once you have it. Basically, it just makes your body a hot mess. And this man already had appendicitis. Just recently, they've learned that appendicitis can actually be treated pretty effectively with antibiotics. So it's ironic that at the end of this episode, this being something that Claire would not have known as a physician in the 1960s, that antibiotics could help her first inclination would have been to perform an appendectomy, which she doesn't have the capability of doing an appendectomy at this point in the story. So Brianna's right. There's nothing that Claire could have done, but Claire's a doctor and she doesn't like to lose patients, especially when she feels that she could have done more. She has this fabulous quote. It says, it's bad enough that I'm fighting the disease, but I'm also fighting the cure. Because in the 18th century, people believe that a lot of these harmful practices actually help and they don't. So this had to have started somewhere. Like, I'm really curious how the idea of bloodletting and mercury pills and things like that, St. John's wort, how they became beneficial practices because nowadays we know that these were actually extremely harmful and in a lot of cases probably killed people. So I'm wondering how this came to be that they thought that these things were beneficial. So if any of you have any background on like medical history and why people thought that harmful things were actually helpful, I would find that interesting. So just comment on this post if you know anything about it. Claire decides to do an autopsy as a result of this loss of Mr. Farish because 
She knows that there's nothing that she can do once she finds out that he has mercury poisoning on top of whatever else is going on with him, most likely appendicitis. And so she does an autopsy and finds out that his appendix actually burst and that it created an infection in his abdomen that was getting worse. And then his symptoms were compounded by the nausea and vomiting and trouble breathing that the mercury was giving him. So it really just killed him faster. And so I think that even frustrated Claire more because not only are people not listening to her when she says, don't do this, but then when they do it, they come to her and expect her to be able to help them when it's far too late for that. They should have just come to her from the beginning. We see this in practice when they are making candles and the women are talking about how the physician in Cross Creek prescribed the ingestion of St. John's wort for this woman's son who burnt his hand. And Clara's like, well, has he been vomiting? And she's like, well, yeah. And she says, it's because that's poisonous and you shouldn't be giving it to your son for a burn on the hand. And she says, well, the physician said that the, the king uses it. And then one woman, God bless her, she was like, Imagine if it got out that the king was being poisoned by his own physician and everybody laughs and Claire's like, "Mm mm-hmm, yeah, wouldn't that be something? (laughs) And so this motivates her to start to take steps. It's putting into place things that are going to affect our characters for the rest of the season. She decides to develop this list of prescribed treatments and things not to do called Dr. Rawlings Recommends which Dr. Rawlings is the man that used to own her medical kit before Jamie purchased it. We don't know what happened to Dr. Rawlings. We do learn what happened to Dr. Rawlings in the books, but I don't know if it's going to be included in the show, so I'm not going to tell you. But if anybody really, really wants to know, you can message me and I will share with you in a private message so we don't have to worry about spoiling any potential season six storylines. Claire does this Dr. Rawlings Recommends. And I think that this is a interesting situation because Brianna seems to be okay with this idea that her mother has to tell everybody that they shouldn't be doing this. And it's coming from a doctor. It's not coming from a healer. It's coming from an actual doctor. And so Claire thinks that they will listen to these things on this list. Um, At the very top, it says blue mass pills. Like that is the first thing that she wants to address. And we learn later on and over the next couple of episodes that there are other things on that list that people are also paying attention to. She's thinking that if she puts a doctor's name on the top, people are more likely to listen to what she has to say. And it's anonymous. And Brie is okay with this form of doctoring because it's not going to directly affect their family, or so she thinks. And it's not playing God because it's just offering advice on the way things should be versus bringing things into existence like penicillin that aren't supposed to exist for another 150 years. So she's she's okay with it. But then when it comes to Claire making penicillin, she's like, whoa, 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 hold the phone. We are not making penicillin. Like, this is playing God. I find this so interesting coming from Brie. And I think we're going to see this play out in season six a little bit. I'm not 100% sure, but... Bria is an engineer and she's an inventor and she's constantly coming up with things 
that make life easier in the 18th century. Air quotes around inventing things, like she's making things that already exist in the 20th century. And so for her to give Claire a lecture about playing God is super ironic. And I like that Claire is like, but you played God when you came back to tell me and Jamie about the death notice. And I'm glad you did. I'm not saying it was wrong, but you can't have it both ways. Like you can't play God and then tell other people that it's wrong to play God. So I'm glad that Claire pointed that out to Brie because it really just stood out to me as like, huh? What are you talking about? Where is this coming from, I guess? And this was another instance where I was like, this is out of character for Brie. Another thing that was out of character is that they made Brie squeamish in the show. And I really, really dislike that. Brie is not a squeamish person. She hunts, she butchers. She does X, Y, Z. I mean, she's a mother. You can't be squeamish, I feel like, and be a mother (laughs) Um, dealing with all of your child's bodily functions and injuries. I don't know whether that's something that they're going to keep up in the show or whether that's something that this particular writer just put into this episode, but I didn't really care for it because it's definitely not Brie. And then they've made Marsley more to the forefront of the show and a major character in this season, which I think is great. Lauren Lyle is fantastic. And she had a fantastic scene with Katrina where Claire enlists Marsley's help as an apprentice. I think that that was a good move for the show. It was a change that I was okay with. I thought it was a good adaptational choice because Lauren is so strong and people gravitate towards Marsley's character. It's not really affecting too much in the future as far as Marsley's participation with Claire and the surgery. I was okay with it, but there were a lot of adaptational choices being thrown at us in this episode, and it was really hard for book readers to wrap their heads around all of it. I think this is one of those episodes that it gets better with age. Like the more you watch it, the more you learn to accept it, I guess. But it was really hard watching this for the first time. I hated it, guys. I did not like this episode the very first time I watched it. And I was having serious doubts about this season. Because like I said last week, I didn't really care for season five's premiere. I thought it was cheesy. It had its good moments, but overall, I was highly concerned about it because I just didn't think it was as well-written as it could be. I just wasn't crazy about it. And then to come to the second episode and be even more disappointed and have even more concerns, yeah, I was not in a good place coming out of the second episode of season five. I was very angry (laughs) with the showrunners. I mean, obviously, I'm past that now, and I can see that this episode had its benefits. I still think it's probably the worst written episode or one of the worst written episodes of the season. But overall, I think when you watch it run all together with the rest of season five, it fits. And there is certainly a reason for its presence. So in that scene with Marsali and Claire, Marsali has a great line where... (laughs) First of all, when Claire pulls back the sheet, she's like, Lord have mercy. (laughs) That reaction was so fantastic. I just wanted to stand up and give Lauren Lyle a ginormous round of applause. She was so fantastic. There were a couple of really great moments in the show that saved the episode for me. And I will talk about the other one here in just a little bit. But the scene between Claire and Marsali, it really brought it full circle. 
I had these alarm bells going off in my head while I was watching it, but I didn't really understand what it was. I just felt like the whole idea of the autopsy was super out of character for Claire. And we can talk for days on end about all of the blog posts from all of the different doctors that watch Outlander that are like, oh my God, this autopsy was a hot effing mess. Like there is no way this is accurate at all in any way, shape or form from the tools that were used to the way that she did it, the way things look, it was just, it was a hot mess. And so I'm not going to get into any of that. If you want to know the dirty details of it all, I'm sure you can Google Between Two Fires Outlander episode autopsy. And I'm sure that you can find all the information that your heart desires about this hot mess that was created in this episode. But like I said, I had all of these alarm bells ringing. I'm like, what is up with this? Why do I feel so wrong about this? And then it hit me when Marcelie and Claire had their scene. Claire was almost burnt at the stake as a witch in Cranesmuir for far less obvious activities than defiling a body. And yes, I know it's an autopsy and it may have been medically necessary, but it's like Brianna said, you can justify this. In 1969, you cannot justify this behavior to 18th century people. It just doesn't make sense to them. It appalls them. They believe that a body needs to be consecrated and buried. And you've literally just taken this family and filled a coffin full of rocks and made them think that they buried their loved one. But really, their loved one is sitting on the table in your surgery cut wide open for medical advancement, quote unquote. So it's really just, I was like, Claire, what are we doing? doing. You are smarter than this. And yes, there is an autopsy in the books, but it's a bit more secret than having the abdominal cavity of a body just laying in your surgery in broad daylight and then bringing somebody else into the mix and be like, hey, look what I'm doing. And not just one person. Brie knows about it. Marceline now knows about it. Roger knows about it. In the books, it was just Claire and Jamie. (laughs) And they were hoping to get in and get out before Anybody knew they were there. They were going to stitch it back up and it was going to be a seamless transition and nobody was going to know about it. And Claire knew how dangerous it was in the books. She made that perfectly clear that she was aware of how people would take it. And in the show, she's just doing her bullheaded Claire thing where she's like, I'm going to do it and damn the consequences. So that is interesting. And I think that is why I have such a big problem with the autopsy. Setting aside all the technicalities of it, it just didn't make sense for Claire to do this in the way that she did it. So then when Marsily comes in and she even says, didn't make me say it. Didn't make me say it, Claire. Was she right? My ma, are you a witch? And um, because Marsily, she knows Claire. And it's like Claire says, Marsily, you're smarter than that. What do you think? But Marsily is the exception, not the rule. And it doesn't really matter in the long term what Marsily and Roger and Bree think. It matters what everybody else thinks when they're going to put together a mob with pitchforks and torches and come burn your house to the ground. Like, Claire, what are you doing? What are you doing? It just doesn't make sense. It makes my head hurt. Um, But I like the way that she talked Marsily into becoming her apprentice. And I liked all of that. But I feel like that had a place. Like, there was a different way to do that besides this completely out of character. And I I say out of character 
It's not entirely out of character for show Claire because show Claire is a lot more reckless than book Claire. And sometimes show Claire, they make it so much more like power to the woman that they put aside all the common sense of it, I guess. So that's one thing that does frustrate me about the show. I'm like, it's not always about women's rights and strong women. It's about common sense action, people. Like, does it make sense to do this? Are you going to get your and your family killed if you go forward with this? well, there's a strong likelihood, oh, then maybe I shouldn't do it. (laughs) Um, But it's like that never crosses Claire's mind and it just, it blows my mind. Especially when we move on to the scene with Claire and Roger, where she's talking about how it's not safe in the 18th century. And as much as she wants he and Brie and Jimmy to stay, they shouldn't. They should go back if they have the chance because she can't make it safe for them in the 18th century. And they have this whole conversation about safety in the 18th century on the heels of this very reckless thing that she has done that's put the entire family in danger. This episode was just all back and forth for me. It was very confusing as a a watcher. It was very confusing. Brie and Roger is the last topic in my conversation for today because I felt like it was important to touch on this. The first scene that we get of Brie and Roger is the hunting scene where Brie is trying to teach Roger how to shoot. This scene, I think, does a good job of showing where Brie and Roger are in their heads. Roger is stuck at the ridge because Jamie didn't take him with him to Hillsboro. He's convinced that Jamie did that because he doesn't respect Roger as a man and he doesn't think that he has any value along for the ride, so he's left him at the ridge. I think that that portion of Jamie's actions probably had more to do with the fact that Claire told Jamie in the last episode that he needed to keep Roger out of it as much as possible because he wasn't ready to be part of a militia. So I think that's where that stems from. I don't think that necessarily has anything to do with Jamie's opinions of Roger as a man, although that's certainly how Roger took it. But I mean, would it have hurt Roger's pride more to know that Jamie left him out because Claire said, well, can you really just keep him out of it, hun? I think that would have hurt Roger's pride more than him thinking that it was just because Jamie doesn't respect him. I mean, Roger knows that he doesn't fit in well with the 18th century life. That comes out in this conversation with Brie because they're talking about the Tufty Fluffy Tail Club. And oh my God, I did not know that this was a thing, but... I want it to be a thing here in the U.S. Like, we have Smokey the Bear, as Roger (laughs) put it. But I want Tufty Fluffy Tail, guys. The squirrel that teaches children about road safety. And Brianna, she says, well, we have plenty of squirrels here. You know, just joking. But she knows Roger isn't joking. And she says, you want to go back, don't you? He does. He wants to go back. He doesn't belong in the 18th century. And I think that's hard. It's a hard thing to accept as Brianna. And Roger understands that. He knows. He knows how hard it is for Brie to contemplate leaving her family. But Roger never planned on staying in the 18th century. He literally went through the stones to get Brie and to drag her back through the stones. Like, he didn't think any farther than that. He didn't plan on preparing himself to live permanently in the 18th century. And he doesn't want to. He likes the 20th century with all of its comforts and modern advancements and technology and his job. He has a purpose in the 20th century. He doesn't have that on Fraser's Ridge. 
And Brie, on the other hand, as much as she loves the modern comforts of her time, her entire family's on the ridge. Her mother, her father, all of her friends. Imagine trying to leave that when you fit in with this world. You know how to hunt and ride horses. You fit in. Other than a longing for technology in general, for hot baths and television and music, there's no reason why you can't stay. And if it means going without hot water but being with your parents or having hot water but going back to the 20th century and losing your parents, what are you going to choose? And so Bree says, our family is here. And Roger says, Bree, you and Jimmy are my family. James Fraser is my colonel. And that line right there goes to show how much the relationship with Jamie and Roger grows over the course of the next 10 episodes. So I do like that it sets that precedent. Roger doesn't view Jamie as family. He views him as his leader and that that is a huge difference. And when Bree says, well, what about Mama? Roger does love Claire, and I think it would be really hard for him to leave her. I think that's why that conversation between Claire and Roger is so vital at the end of this episode, because Claire admits she's like, it's because of me that you're all here. As much as I would love for you to stay, you need to go back, because as hard as I'm trying to make it safe for you guys here, it's just not. Like, Jimmy could scrape his knee and get an infection And there would be nothing I could do to save him because I don't have anything as simple as an antibiotic. I think that's hard for Claire. She wants them to stay. She wants to see her grandchild grow up. She wants to see her daughter be married and be a mother and do all the things in life that you get to do as you grow older. And for her to come out and say that as much as I love you, I need you to be safe. And if that means you have to go back from the stones and... I never see you again, I mean, then that's what we have to do. That was a huge decision for Claire. While I value that decision and appreciate it on a human level, it sucks. And I think that Roger knows how much it would break Bree's heart to leave. But I also think that it's a bit of a weight lifted off of him to know that he is not the only one that feels this way, that they would be better off in the 20th century, that having Claire on his side makes him feel less alone for a little bit. The last Brie and Roger scene that we get, Roger finds Brianna's sketchbook. And it's so interesting because this sequence of scenes is bookended by two perfectly ideal familial moments. You've got Roger singing Joy to the World to Jimmy. And it's this picturesque moment of a father sitting on a chair next to his nine-month-old son playing the guitar and singing to him. And Brianna standing there with her laundry basket looking at them both lovingly. And I love that Roger and Brie have each other to discuss their time with, I miss this or I wish we had this or whatever. That has to be a comfort to each of them, but I also think that it keeps them from accepting reality a little bit because they're constantly recalling what was versus what is. And then she tells Roger, you're a good dad. And I'm sure that like makes him all all bubbly inside. Like anytime anybody gets a compliment, you're like, oh, thanks. So he takes the laundry from Bree and he goes inside and he knocks off her sketchbook. 
the only thing that's really out is this drawing of Jemmy. And he's like, oh, you know, that's so good. And he goes to put the drawing in the sketchbook to protect it and put it back. And he sees this drawing of Stephen Bonnet that Brianna was working on at the very beginning of this episode. And it gives him a start because he automatically knows who it is. And so then he starts fanning through her drawings and he finds two more drawings of Stephen Bonnet. The drawings get successively darker as we go through them. I felt like in a way it was Roger peeling back the layers of Brianna as he approaches this third drawing. Because Brianna tries so hard to put on a brave face and make everybody think that she's okay. And I think that Roger, for the most part, had wooed himself into this false sense of security that Brianna was getting better, that she wasn't having nightmares and she was starting to forget. Because anybody that hasn't experienced PTSD or a traumatic event like a sexual assault, it's hard for you to envision how that would be, how that affects you mentally. I think that he probably just figured like, oh, you know, time will heal her. She'll forget. Finding these drawings really, like I said, just peels the layers back on Brianna's misery and brings it out full force. He understands. He's like, oh, shit, she's dealing with some stuff. And I think he feels guilty for not knowing until this point that she was struggling. So whenever she's like, Roger, come look, and Jemmy is walking, he's so happy in that moment that his son is achieving these milestones, but it's tinged with this bitterness because he's just realized that his wife is still struggling with the image of her rapist in her head and in her dreams at night. And this rapist could potentially be this boy's father. So it's a very dark thing. Like it took this moment of light at the very beginning and then it just twisted it on its head like Outlander is so good at doing. And then we see what Stephen Bonnet's been up to. We knew he was alive in the last episode, but this episode we get that final scene. And I think that they took a chance with making Stephen Bonnet a more prominent character in this season in general. but. I don't know that it necessarily always pays off. I wanted more of Brie and Roger after this big revelation and they threw us to Stephen Bonnet at the end of this episode. I was really flabbergasted by it. I was not expecting it at all. This scene that we see where he cuts the man across the eyes is actually in the books, but Jamie learns about it in a letter from Lord John. So they were really just bringing that to life for us so we could understand the horror, as if we needed clarification on how terrible of a person Stephen Bonnet is. <laughs> also in this scene, we are starting to understand the web that Stephen Bonnet has woven, like what he's been up to since the end of season four. So a couple of things that we get. First, we understand that he has reformed himself with a reputation of a gentleman, and he's making friends in high places. This also establishes the relationship that he has with Gerald Forbes, which will come back into the mix later on in the season. But this is where they met, and this is their connection. Which, I mean, after something like this, everybody is just scared shitless of Stephen Bonnet, <laughs> if they weren't already. And Bonnet's friend that he was with at the fight he says, well, that's not like you, Bonnet. Why didn't you just kill him outright? And Bonnet says, well, I considered it, but I have to set a good example. I'm a father now. And that's the last line of the episode. And literally, I when I was watching this for the first time, 
I stood up and I said, the hell you are. <laughs> um, you are not a fatherly figure to anybody. Anybody. <laughs> um, <laughs> I mean, it was a great way to end the episode. It was just like, I'm sorry, what? <laughs> but um, it was totally unexpected. And so for the shock value alone, it was a good way to end the episode, especially something that was like a relatively slow episode with a lot of um, like, I felt like the premiere was giving everybody that gratification factor of seeing everybody happy and having a good time at the wedding. So the second episode was really laying the foundation for a lot of plot for particularly the first half of this season and a few seeds for the second half of the season. But a lot had to happen in this episode. And I think for all its faults, they did a really good job planting the seeds. And that's why I said when you first watch this episode, you're like, what the hell? But then when you watch it sequentially with the rest of season five, you're like, oh, okay. <laughs> so I try to keep that in mind because this was the first that I watched live. So I had a really hard time not being able to just immediately go to the next episode. But when I watch season six, I'm going to do my darndest to just be like, trust the process, Chelsea. Trust the showrunners and the actors and the producers. Trust everybody. It will be okay. <laughs> so with that mindset, I'm going to bring my analysis to a close this week. I already talked about my quote of the episode about death and taxes, which I thought was phenomenal. My performance of the episode went to Lauren Lyle because that scene with Katrina just stands out to me the most out of this episode. Whenever I thought, well, who am I going to give performance of the episode to? Did anybody really stand out to me? It was Lauren. So hats off to her. My honorable mention was Rick Rankin because I thought he had a lot of great scenes and he did a fantastic job conveying Roger's emotions to us through the screen. So he's my honorable mention. And with all of that, let's get into the portion of the episode where I talk about what you guys thought. Listener comments. This week, there weren't a lot of comments. I have a feeling that this wasn't everybody's favorite Angela Hickey says, oh boy, things went kind of wonky on this one for me. Knox, another person that got on my nerves here and sucked time from the real story, and I'm still fuming about that autopsy crap. So ridiculously out of character. Claire was just off the hizzy in this episode. <laughs> LOL. Yeah, she kind of was, like, not in her right mind for most of this episode. So I'm glad that I'm not the only one that noticed, Angela, because I really did struggle with that. Rebecca Powers said, the most striking thing about this episode to me is Murta's involvement in the vicious tar and feathering, which seems out of character for him. I know that in the books, he dies at Culloden. While I was happy to see him at Ardsmere, they seem to have trouble with his character arc without the books as a guide. At least they use his involvement with the regulators to intensify Jamie's conflict. Yeah, I really think that this whole regulator business is the primary existence of Murta in these later seasons. And I agree. I think they do struggle with his arc a little bit, especially when it came to season four. He was literally just in and out and he was just there because season five, I think they struggle with who he is, like what his character actually means. And it really just, you're right. He only exists to up the ante for Jamie and to make 
the dealings with the regulators more of a conflict for Jamie. So, yeah, I do struggle with Myrta. For the most part, I'm like, okay, it is what it is. But especially in this episode, I was like, this just really doesn't seem like him. It's It was really odd. So I'm glad you noticed, Rebecca. Becky Hartwell says, I was not surprised at all that Claire did the autopsy. She's a doctor. Not only is she a healer, but she needs to solve the problem. She performed the autopsy to find the problem. I was not a fan of Lieutenant Knox at all. He bugged me. Yeah, Knox, like I said, I can see how if you view him as a two-dimensional character, he can really get on your nerves because he's a little bit self-righteous on the surface. But I do think it's more than that. Like, I think that he's a person that really does just fight for what he believes in. And it just so happens that he believes in different things from what Jamie believes in. So it kind of puts them at odds with each other. As for Claire and the autopsy, yeah, I do think that part of it was just simple curiosity. Like, she needed to know what caused Farish's death. And I guess I understand that to an extent, but I just feel like it was super risky, like super risky for her to do something like that and put everybody else in danger. So that's why I didn't really agree with it. Alrighty, guys, that wraps up listener comments for the day. Make sure to join me next week where I am talking 503 free will. This is an interesting one. Another one of those that some people liked and some people didn't. So I'm interested to see what you guys have to say. Make sure to be on the lookout for our listener comments thread for next week. I will try to post it midweek so that you guys have a couple of days to say what you have to say. And with all of that, I don't really have any new news this week. The only thing that happened on the Outlander-ish front is that Sam Hewen released his new Sassanac spirit. It is a tequila so if you guys like tequila, make sure to go check it out. It is a bit expensive, but I'm pretty sure it's a large bottle. So yeah, make sure to get on the list. It said it's going to start shipping in January for most states. A few states, it won't ship till February. So make sure to check. It does say at the bottom of the product description which states are going to ship when. With all of that, I'm going to head out for the day. Like I said, make sure to join me next week when I discuss 503 Free Will. And until then, you guys stay safe out there and I will chat at you later. Bye. Bye.